Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Saskatchewan released the provincial reopening roadmap and on Thursday rolled out the province's second dose and 12-plus strategy. There's also a global news story. COVID-19, Quebec looking to unveil a pandemic reopening plan like that of Saskatchewan. Scott Moe is the Premier of Saskatchewan. He joins us on the program. Premier, thanks very much for taking the time. How are you? I'm doing great, Roy. I hope you're doing well, and I thank you for the time as well. Yeah, good to talk to you. Now, I'm looking at some of the reopening information from your government. More than 70% of Saskatchewan residents age 40 and older have received their first shot of COVID-19 vaccine, and that surpasses, I understand, the threshold for step one of the reopening roadmap, and you've set Sunday, May 30th, three weeks from today, as the target date for the commencement of step one. What can you tell us about that? Well, the roadmap that we had put forward is, is very simple. Uh, step one is 70% of those over 40 achieving a vaccination. As you said, we hit 71% today. So uh, three week, we'll have a three-week interval uh, from today where we will take the, the, the first steps uh, into reopening our, our communities uh, here in this problem, in this province. And it isn't a, step one is not a, a large or ambitious step. Step two is a, a much larger step. Um, and we'll achieve step two when we hit 70% of those 30 and over uh, that would be vaccinated. Uh, we're at 59% today. So doing roughly, you know, maybe just a percent or slightly less than a percent today. So we'd be uh, a couple of weeks away from actually achieving the metrics for step two as well. Uh, positive uh, for, for Saskatchewan and all of Canada as we are finally receiving some additional vaccines here in uh, in May, I guess we're in now. Yeah. So uh, if you look at the five steps, the first step, as you said, is uh, is fairly conservative, uh, but you do have restaurants and bars opening, a max, minimum, a maximum rather, of six at a table, two meters or structural barriers between tables, dance floors, buffets remain closed, VLTs may reopen. So that's the first one that I saw. So uh, are there projected dates for the, uh, you mentioned three, what, three weeks perhaps for, for stage two, but for three through five and progress, what's the progression? Just in, in very simple terms, Premier, what's the progression as to what will open and ultimately when you get to stage five, is the province going to be essentially operational again with, with some limitations or what are we, what are we looking at? Yeah, no, absolutely, and and really, only I guess how you how you look at it. Three three steps that will trigger uh, moving forward. Each of those steps will come into effect three weeks after we hit that uh, that threshold. So step one we've met today. Three weeks later, we'll move forward. Six at a table in our restaurants. Uh, increase our worship services to thirty percent or one hundred and fifty. Fairly, you know, moderate steps. Uh, when we achieve that 30 and over um, receiving 70 percent of those folks receiving other vaccines, that's when we 
are going to remove all of the thresholds on our, our retail uh, capacity, social dis- physical distancing uh, still required, of course. Removing the table capacity in our restaurants, again, uh, still asking for a couple of meters uh, between the tables, but removing that table capacity. And that's when we're going to open up our, our casinos, our theaters, our libraries, our recreational facilities. And a big one in step two is uh, to remove the restrictions on competitive sports, both youth and, and adult. And so then we would lead into step three, which would be when we have 70% of our all adult population, 18 and over vaccinated. And that's when we remove everything. Um, save for we're just going to make some decisions around how large of, of gatherings that we can, how large can our gathering sizes be? We obviously want to fill Mosaic Stadium that you're on our Saskatchewan Rough Riders this summer, uh, but we have we need just a little bit of time between now and whenever we achieve that threshold for step three to find out when we will be able to do that, and we need uh, a little bit of time to make some. Um, some recommendations on when we will remove the the mask wearing, but every other restriction, uh, when we achieve step three, three weeks later, will be removed. So uh, do you have a date uh, penciled on the calendar for stage five, step five? Well, we, we can estimate, uh, we can estimate these dates, but what we, where, what we, uh, well, I guess we do for step one as of today, right, uh, yeah. May the 30th, as we'll take our, our first step through uh, into into this. Um, I, I expect that we'll achieve step two sometime in the middle of June, uh, was when we'll go uh, actually be moving forward with step two. And likely early to the middle of July is when we'll be moving forward with, uh, with step three. Um, and as I said, in the meantime, we're going to make some further uh, guidance on uh, just how large our crowd size can get and and whether or not we need to be wearing our masks uh, indoors uh, after that point. In time. Well, it sounds very encouraging. I want to tell you, Dan Kelly was on this program earlier, the president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, and he specifically asked me to congratulate you for doing this and having uh, unveiled the reopen roadmap. So I'm passing that along. But for small business, uh, small business owners in the province, this is going to be significantly uh, important for your small business community. And we also see that in Quebec, Premier Legault wants his province to follow your lead. What about others? Is there communication among premiers on this issue? Well, there is. There's communication among uh, provincial governments uh, weekly, uh, virtually, at, at many levels. And, and we work quite well together. And, and so when we are uh, you know, finding things that work, we're quick to reach out and to share um, those, those things that that are working. For example, I was on the on the phone with Premier Rankin uh, last week, uh, talking to him about some of the uh, the availability successes that they've had with some of the rapid tests that were were sent out, and we're uh, looking at uh, you know whether Saskatchewan could do something of that nature. In the same way, many are are reaching out uh, with respect to what we've done with our reopening roadmap. Is I think everyone is looking for uh, that light at the end of the tunnel. I, yes. I I know everyone in Saskatchewan is and. And, you know, the, the, some will say this is too quick. Uh, you know, I, I would say this has worked in places like the UK. Some will say it was too slow. I would say, you know, we just need to, need to take a cautious approach, understanding that this virus uh, does uh, present twists and turns as we find our way through this. And uh, So, yeah, there's a good collaboration among uh, all of the provinces at many levels, and, and I expect that to continue uh, as we find our way through this pandemic and for months after as well. How would you describe the relationship with the federal government and the prime minister? Um, I'll go back to the provincial uh, relationship, which has been very, very strong across the nation at our Council of Federation uh, table. But I will say uh, this uh, with respect to the federal government, and I've been on here uh, um, Roy often and, and said that we've 
you know, we, we haven't procured enough vaccines in this country soon enough. Um, we, we would expect to, to have done better. But the federal government has, uh, you know, been at the table on our first minister's calls on a, essentially a biweekly, sometimes a weekly basis. And they have um, worked uh, reasonably well with the provinces where they can. Uh, you know, our reopens, um, our reopen uh, plan that we had put together uh, with premiers and the prime minister, a little over $20 billion being provided. Um, you know, people can argue the, the semantics of where that where those dollars went, but it uh, was the federal government that did uh, step into that place. It did provide us with these rapid tests, and and they have uh, they have been a, a willing partner on many on many topics throughout uh, the course of the last now more than uh, more than a year. So we we continue to work together. Obviously, uh, Saskatchewan won't agree with the federal government on a number of of things outside of COVID, but we do work quite closely with the federal government when it comes to ensuring the, the safety and, and uh, the vaccine access or to the greatest degree we can, um, which ultimately is going to find us through this pandemic. Yeah. Premier Mo, one more question. Uh, news uh, this weekend, Maxime Bernier, the leader of the People's Party of Canada, in Regina yesterday for a freedom rally, that's what it was called, anti-mask rally, and also making additional stops, including Saskatoon today. Uh, story is that Mr. Bernier was fined by police for being there, or what he did. What's your message to uh, Maxime Bernier, and what's your thinking on the anti-mask rally organizers and participants? Well, whether you're in Saskatchewan or wherever you are in Canada or around the world, the public health uh, orders and uh, guidance that is in place it isn't there because, uh, you know, governments think it would be you know, a nice thing to put these things in place. It's there on the public health advice that we have to uh, make every effort to keep people safe, keep people out of our hospitals and to keep COVID at, at bay. Uh, you know, when I, when I see people that are, you know, protesting for things to go back to normal, I would hope it would be those same people that would be first in line at our vaccination clinics because ultimately the way back to normal in, in this nation and more specifically in Saskatchewan, is uh, is through the the road to, the road to back to normal does lead through one of Saskatchewan's vaccination clinics. And if if you want to get back to normal, that's where you should be. Is you should be in a lineup to get your vaccine and encouraging others to get theirs as well. Not at a freedom rally uh, without a mask uh, and openly uh, and flagrantly breaking the public health orders that are meant to keep you safe. But then also encouraging others to do the same. So I understand there were some fines that were. Uh, um, uh, were administered yesterday in Regina. I expect there'll probably be some more uh, at, at the police's discretion in, in Saskatoon if there's another rally. And it's it's unfortunate. It's really, really unfortunate. And I would say borders on foolish uh, for uh, for people to be out not only breaking those laws themselves um, that are there to keep them and their family members and their community members safe, but encouraging others to to join them and do the very same thing. It's 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 disappointing. Uh, there is a way through this. That's not the way. Chetty, 3,780 deaths in India in the last 24 hours, with some reports suggesting it could be 10 times greater. I looked at your pinned tweet, and uh, it reads, If you're breathing today, say a prayer of hey, lucky. Please share us in what is life like in India today? Exactly what my tweet says that if you're breathing today, just consider yourself to be extremely lucky, given the fact that uh, the common man has been left in the lurch, is scrambling for basics like oxygen, uh, scrambling for hospital beds, 
with ventilators, scrambling for medication, which the hospital is supposed to inject. Uh, the doctors are prescribing medication and they're running blood posts to try to find medication, which is being sold at black market price at exponentially high prices, uh, which most of them cannot even afford. The healthcare facilities are overburdened. Uh, during the start of the second wave, Roy, I used to get a lot of calls uh, being in the media as a journalist, as an influencer, asking me to help people out with beds and medicines and oxygen and ventilators and oxygen concentrators. Now I get calls um, saying, that, could you please help us with the crematorium? Because there is a huge queue at the crematorium and we do not know how to uh, you know, cremate the body anymore. Uh, there are people gasping for breath, for basics, you anyway know our economy has been badly hit. Um, the 2020 pandemic was not very kind on the economy, the jobs, there was loss of livelihood. We went into a lockdown as well. And 2021, the second wave that has come has caught everyone off guard. We wouldn't say we didn't see the signs coming. Uh, the signs were all there, but uh, just caught everyone so off guard. The healthcare facilities were overburdened, not prepared to uh, end up taking these scores and volumes of people who are just wanting to get themselves admitted just to be able to breathe. It's pathetic. You see, there are queues of kilometers long outside hospitals. There are people who are uh, sitting in their private vehicles uh, trying to uh, uh, connect some sort of a ventilator outside the hospital waiting for their turn to come in. It's, it's, horrif it's horrific. I can't even put it into words right now to tell you how horrific it is on ground here in India. Cues of vehicles for kilometers long outside hospitals? Yeah, that's right. That's the reality right now. And not just that. Um, Roy, every day I get calls from hospital management putting out an SOS. It's never happened. It's unprecedented to say the least that hospitals take to Twitter to cry out for an SOS for oxygen. We have about 10 minutes oxygen left, please help us. Tagging everybody in charge from the government. Uh, is the central government listening? Is the state government listening? Scrambling to ensure that their patients are alive, are able to breathe. Uh, yesterday I got a call, Roy, from uh, a children's hospital called Rainbow Hospital here in Delhi. Uh, some 12 premature babies were on oxygen support and they ran out of oxygen completely and they did not know where to get their supplies from. The suppliers are not picking up their phones. Uh, logistics from the state governments and in Delhi, in the national capital, are rather very poor. The central government has not allocated the amount that uh, Delhi is required to receive in terms of metric tons of uh, oxygen. So that's the national capital we're talking about. I do not even want to fathom what is going on or try to explain what is going on in the interiors of this country where the infrastructure is not that great. You've been tweeting individual stories of desperate family members trying to find help for their loved ones. Can you share one of these stories with us, please? There are many, Roy. Uh, just recently, about a couple of minutes ago, I got tagged on this one tweet saying that uh, a man is, I think, in his 70s, late 70s, if I'm not mistaken. You'll find that on my Twitter handle. His uh, father was unable to breathe. He was admitted at, an, uh, at a hospital. Uh, he was put on uh, oxygen support, but there was such an influx of patients that they kept taking the oxygen out of his face and putting that 
put uh, support system onto another patient. Now this man is again gasping for breath. So this son is crying to me on the phone saying that my father is gasping. He's, he's sinking. His SpO2 level is going down. It's 70 now. It's 60 now. I don't know. Can you please help me with a cylinder? And obviously, you know, we call them, we verify, we hear the desperation in their voices. Uh, in my personal capacity as a private citizen, um, not as a journalist, not as, you know, anything, you know, just as a private citizen of this country, in my personal capacity, I've been able to mobilize a couple of NGOs and foundations um, and have them deliver oxygen cylinders, uh, get the philanthropists to donate oxygen cylinders. So people who do not have the money, like the man who called me today, uh, end up now you to buy one oxygen cylinder. You're getting fees for one cylinder last year for half an hour is not something that a common man can afford in this country. One vial of injection is is being sold in the black market for 50,000 rupees, which is not possible for a common man to get. He does not have the financial wherewithal. So these are the kind of desperate stories that are coming in where uh, people are just tagging me in several different tweets. And also, you know, through my reportage and through what I do as a journalist, I come across scores and scores of people who uh, are just either waiting for an oxygen bed or they're waiting for just a regular bed or an ICU support uh, or something as simple as basic medication, which the doctor is prescribing. And when I see these individual stories, my heart breaks and I put out the tweets in order to amplify to see if I can help them get any kind of help possible. And I wouldn't say that help is not coming in. Many people, we have a wide reach. So many people read it. Um, uh, people have come forward. Lots of uh, Samaritans have come forward, have helped us in my individual capacity. I've tried to help as much as possible. Roy. What is the day going to be like? What will today be like for the Indian citizen who doesn't have tremendous means, but is starting to show symptoms of COVID. What's that person's day going to be like? That person is just going to be waking up with a whole whole amount of anxiety and panic, knowing that if my symptoms worsen going forward, I will not be able to get the medical assistance that I require. At the moment, I know so many hospital owners who are personal friends and know them through Uh, the capacity of being a journalist and reporting very actively on the coronavirus crisis in India. And uh, they are telling us that the hospitals are having to send the patients home because they are not receiving any kind of medical aid or government assistance or administrative assistance. Uh, And hence, uh, hospital is not going to be your go-to. And hence, there's a lot of anxiety that there will be a delay in the kind of medical aid that I end up uh, receiving. Uh, doctors are trying to treat patients at home. You are doing teleconsultations. But as you already know, when the symptoms worsen, you require a certain infrastructure with an ICU support, with oxygen support. Uh, there's going to be a lot of anxiety amongst themselves and their family members. Uh, I mean, anxiety is the word. Anxiety is all how I can describe their day to be like. Public Health Agency of Canada confirmed that vaccines are appropriate for children 12 years of age and older. Meanwhile, the world-famous St. Jude Children's Research Hospital's director of the St. Jude Global Infections uh, Infectious Diseases Program said this week, quote, in order to achieve the two-thirds threshold necessary for herd immunity, childhood vaccinations are a key component. Dr. Miguela Caniza joins us. She's the director of the St. Jude 
Global Infectious Diseases Program. And uh, Dr. Canizo, thank you very much for taking the time. So if I understand correctly, you're urging children to be vaccinated in order for us to reach herd immunity population-wide, yes? Yes. Um, hello. Hi. Uh, here is good afternoon. So it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. And um, as a pediatrician, I always advocate for immunization and um, so for the safety of children and then also for all, all those who take care of them. So talk so, to a, Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Her immunity is kind of a difficult subject. And um, as we speak now, uh, many scientists and people who follow this very closely and epidemiologists, they feel like her immunity is kind of like difficult. And so, you know, certainly children uh, are, you know, 25% of the U.S. population are below 18 years of age. So immunizing uh, that group would be very, very good. And so it's going to make our environment more more safe and most likely less transmission of the virus. But it's going to be hard to say that unless we really are good with vaccination, that we might be able to get to her immunity. You urged when COVID first appeared that your colleagues in infectious diseases internationally in 24 countries focus on the virus, and that led to a registry tracking COVID-19 and childhood cancer patients around the world. What has that contributed to understanding uh, the coronavirus? Well, the fear was, and, and it is now, that children with cancer might, might have more frequent disease and much more difficult disease. Certainly, uh, what we are seeing is that children with cancer similar to children, they don't have many more diseases uh, than, um, than children who have no cancer, but still it is a serious disease. So we don't see, um, we don't see like a huge percentage of children with cancer being incredibly sick. What we are seeing is that the great majority of those children with cancer there, uh, the severity is not that much, meaning like a bunch of them have asymptomatic infection. And then the other group, you know, like a huge number of them, they have mild disease. And, you know, those who are severe with severe disease is the less percent, is below like 10%. So that is a very good information that we are getting from the registry. And we are a bit like more at peace with that. Certainly still we, we worry about when a kid with cancer has COVID. But um, now with that information, we can say with more like certainty, uh, you know, that um, we, we need to be prepared, but not to the, ex not to the extent in, with the fear that we had without having that information. Not sure if that helped. Yeah, we've been hearing, and the conventional wisdom has been, and it always is, that kids have are very resilient, that they have robust um, uh, defense systems, and they can overcome and handle viral infections far better 
than older people, and that is true. However, as you point out, children and teenagers can also become infected, and some of them with serious disease, serious COVID disease, and you're still learning about this and the and the consequences, and that includes, does it not, long-term effects, these post-COVID conditions? Yes, that is true, and um, we cannot relax and say, like, children with... Um, you know, just in general, children and adolescents are going to have less serious disease, asymptomatic or very mild. You're right. You know, a percent of those kids, they can have the post-COVID problem, which is kind of like a very uh, inflammatory disease that they can be sick for quite some time with fever, kind of a very, very bad cold. But unfortunately, some of them can produce inflamed vessels and one of the most important vessels are around the heart, and so that uh, they can produce that. So uh, children and uh, young adolescents, and uh, they, can, they can be um, seriously diseased with COVID. So this is not to relax, but just to be um, careful with this disease. How early in life uh, would you recommend children be vaccinated? Currently, we have, uh, which is approved, uh, 16 years and older, the Pfizer vaccine, and that is approved in the United States uh, under the emergency use authorization. And that has, has been shown to be safe. And I know that parents are uh, worried about the safety. It has been shown to be safe, meaning that does not produce, you know, like the side effects that um, people are worried about. And... Um, so now, um, and hopefully next week, we will have uh, some uh, information and hopefully an approval for, um, for the emergency use authorization for those aged 12 to 15. And if we have that, you know, we are going to be quite happy about that. And I would say, I would recommend the vaccinating uh, children in that age group and uh, certainly it's not a licensed vaccine, but it is going to be released under the emergency use authorization. Okay. And so anyway, so it, it is a fantastic news for, for us, you know, pediatrician, right. and also I am a mother. So I'm right. very happy about that. There's another story that comes out of British Columbia, and that is the story where a British Columbia judge said that a man who threw a a major party. It was more than a party. It was almost like, from what I gather, reading the description of the place, it was almost a commercial um, uh, entertainment center. Anyway, um, he was charged, and he spent a day in jail. He spent five days in remand, and the judge, and fined as well, and the judge said that had someone at that party contracted COVID and died, the man could have been charged with manslaughter, and former British Columbia Supreme Court Justice Wally Opel agreed with that. So I'm curious about what uh, Ari Goldkind thinks about this. Ari is a criminal lawyer in Toronto, media pundit, and uh, has strong opinions on all issues that have to do with law. So Ari, your thoughts on whether a manslaughter charge may follow, and let me go through this again, may follow a major and in violation of emergency provincial ordinance gathering for the person who organized and held the gathering if another person attending contracted COVID and died. What do you say? Good afternoon, Roy. And I will say that, you know, it's a very wonderful headline because the judge essentially 
went after this guy and this guy for a series of reasons, if you know anything about his life, is really a drag and a low life. And the bigger story about him is being missed, which is what a nuisance he is with his big fancy penthouse and, you know, the bank of mum and dad and driving his neighbors nuts with these big parties. But instead, the headline is being, well, he could have been charged with manslaughter because a judge went after him to make an example of him, but didn't really do it. So I can tell you that even though technically a prosecutor or a police officer could lay a charge of manslaughter, and just for people to know what manslaughter means, it's underneath murder. In other words, for murder, you have an intention to kill somebody. A lot of people hear the word manslaughter and think it's a man wanting to slaughter another. It's not. It's an unlawful act. For example, you know, I punch you in the face. You die from your injuries. But I never intended to kill Roy Green. I could be charged with manslaughter. Or there's a criminal negligence route, which is this man is, you know, objectively and foreseeably endangering somebody's life who comes to his penthouse party. In other words, that person dies or goes home to grandma and spreads it. You know, if that's the metric where judges are going to be reaming out a low life like this, an easy target, you know, it escapes me how the federal government, by leaving international airports open since February of 2020, wouldn't be as open to a charge of criminal negligence, foreseeably letting COVID and the variants into the country, than this idiot in Vancouver. So while I think it's a very wonderful headline and it's juicy, do I think any police officer or any Crown attorney is going to lay a a manslaughter charge in this kind of case, the way they do in, for example, a fentanyl dealer case. Somebody sells somebody drugs, it's laced with fentanyl. The person doesn't know it's fentanyl, they die. I don't see it happening. I think it was a judge blustering, but obviously it got national headlines and we're talking about it. Okay, so now, uh, thank you for that. Let me ask you this one. Let's move to the other story and the one about the police checks. What are your thoughts about emergency ordinances enacted by provincial premiers, Doug Ford's police will stop and question you if you're out of your vehicle mandate, fell apart, I think, within 72 hours, and primarily because 20 Ontario police services stated they were not going to enforce this ordinance. So if you do not have police buy-in, you don't have an ordinance. But did, did he have did he have constitutional grounds for what he decided? No, and uh, without getting too wonky, and this is something I felt very strongly about, and, you know, I thought it was an incredible thing in our country, and you and I have probably never seen it in our young lives, where the police are more of a check on power than elected officials. Usually elected officials have to tell cops to cut it out, or judges do. Here, 20 police forces, the biggest ones in Ontario, other than the Ontario Provincial Police that said, yeah, chef's kiss, we want this power, 20 other Uh, police forces told the Doug Ford government to stick it. Now, here's the problem with the checkpoints, because this is, again, one of the stupidest bits of lockdown theater that's ever gone on in this country. And you you probably saw this, Roy, on the Monday morning after these stupid checkpoints were set up, coming into Ottawa, all these hardworking people from Quebec, single file, were stopped at the highway in an hour-long pileup to answer questions of whether they're going to work or not. Yet the international airports, because we have a government that's much more concerned with virtue signaling, they never want to be called a name, everything is sort of through a lens of not wanting to offend anybody. You still today, Roy, as you and I are talking, and I looked at this, as you and I are talking, there are three jumbo jets landing every hour 
from every country where variants are coming in, not necessarily directly. So to pull hardworking, ordinary, average Canadians going to work at the morning, it is the worst of lockdown theatre and totally unconnected to the science. And by the way, not all that legal, in my view, when you look at the freedom of mobility and none of this supposed to be arbitrary or random. So let me come to the next point with you. And, and it's this. You talked about, and you mentioned the possibility, or you wouldn't be surprised, I think you said, if at some point down the road when the pandemic is uh, more under control and we're back to some level of normalcy in our lives, that the law might not come a-calling to some elected officials. Do you, for decisions they made, ostensibly to protect us all, do you foresee any possibility that decisions taken at the government level, federal, provincial, even municipally, during the pandemic may result in legal challenges against governments and specific politicians? I think the answer to that is mixed. On a criminal front, which is the area that I'm near and dear to my heart, I would say no, because there's such an incestuous relationship between the branches of power in our government. And I certainly think if you look at the statements of the health person, Minister Hajdu, that is negligence, in my view, of a file that I've seen RCMP investigations into people who have done far less. Look at the investigation into Mike Duffy that blew away millions of taxpayer dollars. This is a person who said, leave the borders open, do this, flights coming in are fine, variants are fine, all this sort of signaling to the public so that we're all popular and don't offend anybody. Where I think lawsuits really and legal action is coming for some people, Roy, is in the area of long-term care homes. That file to me was so screwed up from both a political, moral, and legally culpable view, particularly some for-profit homes, where if you look at the death rates in for-profit long-term care homes, my view, Roy, is if this would have happened in daycares or children in daycares were ever affected in a, in a more child-oriented pandemic, nobody would have let this stand. There'd be charges, inquiries, lawsuits. So in the long-term care home specter, I really do think we might see some serious litigation and legal culpability once the smoke clears. Not that I believe that we're ever going to have the smoke clears. The more people vaccine, the more rules we're still under. But I think that's where you're really going to see ministerial and legal culpability on the part of government. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 